This is a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information, please visit digitalpreservation.gov. I'm Mike Ashenfelder. My guest today is Adam Farquhar, Head of Digital Library Technology at the British Library. Adam, thank you very much for talking with us today. Tell me a little bit about your background, uh, what you do at the British Library. Okay, Mike. Well, I'm really glad to be here and have the chance to uh, sit down and and talk to you as well. I'm head of digital library technology at the British Library, and in that role, I have two big focus areas. One is on digital preservation, and we'll be talking about that today, and another is on uh, scientific and research data sets. We've relatively recently established a new strategy and a set of activities, a new program of work around scientific and research data at the library. might be something interesting to talk about on another day. Well, let's talk about planets then. First of all, how it came to be formed. What's the history behind planets and its formation? Well, I guess it it goes back a long time now as these uh, European Union projects go. They actually date about a year back from the date that the project actually started. So uh, Planets was co-funded by the European Commission. It involved uh, 16 organizations from across Europe, including four national libraries, three national archives, um, some university uh, research groups, and a set of technology partners as well, including both Microsoft and IBM, so from small SMEs through to large corporates. And I think the kernel of the idea dates back to, what is that now, around 2005. And this was a period when national libraries were really beginning to be confronted with large-scale digital collections. So we've all been in the business of um, starting to build up digital repositories. Uh, in 2003 in the UK, a, a Legal Deposit Libraries Act was extended to include digital material. So we knew that there was this coming flood of digital material, digital collections that we would have to put on a par with our print collections and be really uh, strong stewards of going forward. And uh, we were all confronted with that challenge. Um, How do we make sure that we could be good stewards of our digital material? And we knew that we didn't know how to do that. In fact, we knew that nobody knew how to do that, right? Because no one had done it before. So that was really what drove us together at that time. And when I think about it, one of the things that worked out really well in the project is it was driven by a set of problem owners, so those national libraries and archives who take digital preservation extremely seriously. For many of us, it has become, it's, it's our day job. It's not something we're working on on the side. It's, it's really the core of what we do. And those organizations realize that it's going to be um, the core of how they discharge their responsibilities to their national government, to their parliaments, and so on in the future as we make that shift from print to digital material. So we had a really strong representation of problem owners, and then we were able to kind of bring in the research partners and the technology partners in order to help us to kind of build that complete package of partners who could not only see the problem and feel it really acutely, but also see how to provide practical solutions today and identify the the long-term research problems that uh, might not be uh, fully solved right away, but that they could start dedicating resources to. So the end result of all of of your work is the Planet Suite. What is the Planet Suite comprised of? 
maybe as a, a preparatory step, think about uh, just to say a little bit about how we think about the preservation problem within the planet's project. So, uh, in some sense, it, it starts with what organizations uh, need to do with their content. It starts with their policies. Okay? Once you've got your policies in place, you can look at your, your digital collections and you can recognize, identify where they're meeting the policies, where you're able to meet your policies, and where you're not. Where you're not, you may need to do some planning. Right? So preservation planning involves looking at your content, identifying it, the interesting properties of it, looking at that against your policies and your goals, and trying to come up with alternative actions that will enable you to meet them. In order to do that, you've got not just to have uh, services to characterize your content, but also sort of a toolkit of actions that you can deploy to uh, make the changes that you need. And in order to make good decisions about which plans are better and which aren't, you need two things. One is you need kind of a real evidence. So what tools perform in what way on what types of content? And the other is, well, we love to have the evidence, we also like to try it on our own stuff. So you need an environment within which you can test and evaluate preservation plans on your own contents or sample content to see whether in fact they really are going to help you to meet your policies. And that's the, the kind of the structure, that's the approach that Planets has taken to breaking down the digital preservation problem. Mm -hmm. so it's preservation planning, which makes use of characterization and action services. There's this thing that we call the, the, the test bed, which enables us to evaluate and validate the properties of the services that we are working with. Is this an iterative process where you, you, you to the best of your ability, set out the policies, but then as you go through the framework? So let's see. It's not iterative in the sense that you have a rapid rotation through it. It's a repeated activity in the sense that your policies change over time the collections change over time and the needs of your user community change over time and all those things require you to revisit the situation um, reevaluate whether your current collection and the way you're delivering it are meeting your policies which will often reference your users and your user community so you might find that a vendor that's provided a, a software application that you use to interact with content, let's say uh, you've been able to read uh, Windows 95 files and the latest uh, version of the Office suite doesn't do as good a job of rendering those files as it used to. You might want to take steps then if you find that not only do you have those type of files in your collection, but many of your users have moved to a new the new software version. Another kind of example, in a university setting, many people are able to use uh, LaTeX, a language for marking up and defining uh, beautifully formatted text documents. In university environments, that's relatively common. In home environments and in commercial environments, it's actually extremely rare. If I have a LaTeX file and I'm in a commercial environment, I will likely be unable to read it. So if I'm a content holder, I have files in that format. If my customer base has been extended from the university setting to include uh, corporate settings or corporate research departments, for instance, then I'm going to have to find a new way in which to provide access to that content of that new community. So that's the sort of interplay between the context, your business context, the type of content you have, the technical environment which you're delivering it in, 
and the policies that you hold. So the tools that do this, the Planets Project didn't create the tools, right? You can include others' so, tools? So that was one of the key design principles in the Planets Project, was we wanted to have a framework that could be extended uh, easily and could take advantage of the best components that were available uh, in 2008 or available in 2010 or, or down the road. So let's take a look at, have a little think about how that works. Let me take you through maybe a, a possible scenario. Uh, we can take an example that we, we did, a uh, case study that we did here at the British Library. Uh, we had a large collection of page images of historic newspapers that had been produced in TIFF 5, a TIFF format, sort of a, an older archival image format. We were finding several challenges with that and, uh, and some opportunities with new capabilities and new file formats, which is another direction that goes, it's not just addressing problems, but also taking advantage of new opportunities. For instance, we were interested in evaluating whether the JPEG 2000 format might be a better fit they had a lossy compression, excuse me, a lossless compression algorithm. So just like the TIFFs, it would save every single bit, but it did it much more efficiently. And we had a thought, maybe we could move from those older TIFF files to an, a new, more compact file format, and maybe that would lo reduce our storage costs in an interesting fashion because we had we have hundreds of terabytes of these things. And so. One thing you can do there is you can just do an ad hoc project and try to figure it out and work through the scenarios. And, and that's what people have traditionally done. Uh, instead of that, we used a structured methodology that was supported by the planet's preservation planning tool, which is known as Plato. And we were able to use that tool and that structured methodology to articulate all our requirements quite carefully, to do the analysis in a very well-founded way we looked at several different scenarios. It ended up for us, the best alternative was in fact to move to JPEG 2000 with the lossless compression. And by doing that, we were able to save something like 25 to 30% on our storage costs, which was uh, substantial when yeah. you're talking about several hundred terabytes. Yeah. Um, and not only did we go through the analysis, but that Plato tool enables you to sort of push a button and it creates a structured documentation in PDF and other formats that records exactly all the things that were considered, the tests that were done, the evaluations that you made on them, and the conclusions that you made based on that. And these structured documents then um, are archivable themselves. Um, they record uh, the planning and decision process and can be neatly compared and reviewed uh, down the line in a way that a kind of ad hoc textual description is not. Using the Plato tool then, that gave us this nice sort of structured approach. We were then able to use a different set of tools to do the transformation of the content from those TIFFs to the JPEG 2000. Not only do you want to do that migration, but then you subsequently want to do a quality assurance process. You want to compare the before and after pictures to make sure that they're exactly the same. There are lots of high quality software tools out there to do content migrations. When you're doing them on large sets of objects, it's not uncommon that even the most reliable um, and wide, most widely used tools uh, fail in surprising ways in some circumstances. So we were able to apply a planet's technology for doing sort of before and after comparison as well. 
What becomes of the original TIFs, or is that just a decision that each institution that uses planets would have to make, whether they want well, to s still keep the TIFs? Exactly right. So to add to that, in fact, um, we've seen write-ups of other analyses done by other institutions about whether they want to make a move from TIFF to JPEG 2000. And for some of them, the answer has been no. Um, there wasn't enough value for them when they did the analysis using Plato to make that transfer. So like I say, it really depends on what your requirements and what your institutional policies are. And that's a good example. Is it something where you want to throw out the TIFs? Do you want to let them degrade gracefully over time? Or do you want to keep them as uh, additional copies? I mean, those are some of the alternatives that one would want to look at in a structured way in order to make the right decisions. Sure, but that's up to the collection owners. Absolutely. Tell me, Adam, about the formats. Excel, XCEL and XCDL? Do I have that correct? That's right. So. XCEL and XCDL are a pair of languages that were developed within the Planets project. So XCDL, is it, the DL stands for description language. It's a language that enables you to describe digital objects and not in the sense of, you know, bibliographic metadata. It's describing the various properties of the digital object that you're interested in from the point of view of preservation planning. So, for instance, you might get information like the number of pages or the color depth or the number of images or any relevant information that you would be using during the preservation planning process. Now, the next question is, where do you get that information? Typically, when you're doing an analysis of a content set, what the standard practice is you get a tool which works for that particular content. Maybe you're looking at image collections. You use something like Image Magic to get some of the technical metadata from those images. You might use another tool to, one tool to work with your TIFFs and another to work with your JPEGs, and they turn out incompatible descriptions. You have to do a bunch of work to map them together into sort of a comment format, common format for your specific scenario. XCDL takes a lot of that pain away. It provides you with a shared language for describing the properties of digital objects. So how do you get them? One way is actually to use a tool like ImageMagic that's been wrapped so that its output is translated into XCDL. Another is to use a, a slightly different approach to extract the properties, and that's what the XCEL language does for you. So XCEL, that's the extensible characterization extraction language, characteristic extraction language. It lets you describe a file format in such a way that you can actually use the description in an automated process to extract properties from the digital object. That means a single sort of a software set can extract properties not just from images or text documents, but from any type, any type of digital object you can imagine. It's a very rich framework with a very strong theoretical foundation as well. That's the great part about it. And for practically speaking, there's a challenge there, which is to produce those high quality descriptions of the formats that allow you to extract properties. And in order to kind of bootstrap that process, you can do this wrapping approach, as I mentioned before. Now, I'd like to ask you also about the services and registries within the Planet Suite the preservation characterization services. Can you talk about that? Let me first distinguish between the service approach that Planets uses generally and the specific services, for instance, for characterization and for the registry information. The Planets framework uses a service-oriented approach. 
And so that that has a couple of really nice properties. So one property means that I can, out in the cloud, provide a particular service. You could give me a digital object and I can return its properties, or you could give me a digital object and I could do a migration to another format and return it to you, for instance. Right? That's a service-oriented approach. It also means that I can have an application within my organization. I've deployed it locally and in some cases call out to external services, in some cases call out to internally provided ones, and in some cases use that same service architecture but execute things efficiently on a single machine. That's the, the key to the, the overall service approach there. Mm-hmm. Then there's a set of services which the Planets Suite provides. So there's a set of, if you have an installation of the Planet Suite, it will be bundled with a set of services that'll come with it for characterization, identification, migration, and so on. That set is then extensible. There are some that are almost built into Planets but have to be downloaded and installed separately because of the licensing conditions associated with it. The Planet Suite itself is primarily free and open source software, but there's an opportunity there for um, third parties to provide services with a financial model of some sort associated with them. So a little bit about the spread of the services there. The registry services, that's a particular class of service where you have information about digital file formats and can go and get them. So this is an extension really of the excellent work that was done, has been done at the, the National Archives in the UK on Pronome, Pronome is a file format registry that has information about the formats that's been extended also now to include more information about the characteristics of the objects as well. And uh, Jove, is Jove part of that or or the user has an option to incorporate Jove? That's right. Jove is a tool that was initially developed jointly between JSTOR and Harvard University Library and it does file format validation. So it's primarily task primary task is you give it a file format, say a PDF, and it will tell you, yes, this is a PDF, and it's a well-formatted one. It's a very important part, especially of ingest process, as well as validating the results of a migration. Within Planets, we've wrapped that Jove process, so it's available as one of the Planet services. Let's talk a bit about emulation. Let's start by saying a bit about the um, goal of emulation. Sometimes the best thing to do is to take a digital object and migrate it to a new format. But whenever you do that, you know that you lose something. The new formats are always different than the old formats, otherwise they wouldn't have been necessary. (laughs) And sometimes they capture all the properties that you're interested in, and sometimes they don't. This is especially true of formats that have a big dynamic component to them. So examples might be Excel spreadsheets with lots of macros flash files, computer games, and other software applications. Those all have very strong dynamic components to them, and they don't migrate very well. It's quite challenging to do that sometimes. So what to do? One of the things you can do is you could imagine, well, if I just had a a desktop machine from 1984, right? I could install an ancient operating system on it. I could install that old software on it, and put my files on a floppy disk, insert it in the floppy drive, and run it, and then I could look at my Abbey Word documents in the original environment and so on. So that's great, and in fact, I've talked to people who have done sometimes very expensive projects to do exactly that, uh, typically in a commercial setting when they're talking about high-value data, for instance. 
but that can be very expensive. You may need multiple generations of hardware in order to do it. You may have a lot of trouble finding those ancient bits and pieces of metal and plastic. So emulation provides an alternative approach, right? It gives you a virtual hardware in which you can put virtual floppy disks and CDs and other media and run those old applications and give you access to content or dynamic uh, applications in a way that feels very much like how they were used originally. So that's a little bit like people who want to read vellum manuscripts, you know, sitting in a dark castle with candlelight. They want that original <laughs> experience, right? And there are people like that. There's also some other very pragmatic ways that we can use emulation technology that go beyond experiencing it, if you will, in the original context. So for instance, we can use emulation in a migration setting. So what's an easy way, for instance, to convert I'll pick on Abbey Word, I don't know why, to convert an Abbey Word document into a PDF. Well, actually, you can do that whole project that I described with physical hardware in software. And you can do that within the Planet Suite. We've actually wrapped emulation components in a way that you can inject content into them, execute processes like loading the the Abbey Word document into an installed version of Abbey Word, printing it out to a PDF, and extracting the PDF from the emulated environment all in a fully automated way. It's a really powerful idea. It's one of the things I'm very excited that we were able to accomplish in the relatively uh, strict confines of the project work that we did. Stepping back just for a moment, Adam, to the services again, I wanted to ask you about the uh, Preservation Watch service. Preservation watch services are kind of an interesting area. And I think they're particularly interesting today because we haven't quite figured out how to automate them fully. But the idea behind a preservation watch service is to monitor the environment. Partly that's uh, your user community. Partly that's the external environment. Changes in the software industry, changes in the hardware industry, changes in the tools that people are using. And those changes uh, need to be brought to the attention of folks at content holding institutions because they affect whether or not they're able to um, meet their requirements about how they're delivering content to their user. Lots of examples of changes in the external environment where you'd like somebody to let you know. Sometimes it's as simple as Sony stopping producing uh, floppy disks and hardware vendors stopping, uh, ceasing to include floppy disk drives in their machines. So this is actually a, what well, was a pretty substantial change. It meant that content that was available on floppy disk only, and there's quite a few of them, would no longer be accessible to people without some special intervention. So that queues up in the, the sort of the workload of the people in the preservation departments to take those sorts of interventions. I mean, there, there are a number of possibilities there. Um, there are other changes that are in the software area. So Microsoft recently introduced Windows 7, a fantastic new operating system very different architecture with respect to the drivers. There are things that do not work as beautifully in Windows 7 as they did in Windows XP. And that includes both software applications as well as peripherals and other hardware devices. If you are relying on any of them, uh, if your user community has shifted in a large way to that new environment, you, you've got to take some action. We're just on the cusp, I think, of learning how to automate more of the preservation watch activities by using things like profile information about archived web material and um, 
patterns of uh, hits for certain types of searches in search engines like Google or Bing and so on. Um, and I'm hoping that the next few years will bring some real results on increasing the level of automating of preservation watch services. The Planets project has ended, is that correct? And uh, the work continues on with the Open Planets Foundation? Yes, that's right. So the project came to an end in the uh, end of May this year. Of course, they don't always turn off as crisply as that. We had a fantastic final review in July, and we're working on the final reports throughout the summer. But one of the things that was important for the content-holding institutions that were really driving the project was that their investment wouldn't come to a close, so to speak, at the uh, closure of the project. They wanted to make sure there was some way to sustain the investment they had made in developing tools, techniques, and software. And because of, I think, the impact that the organizations are seeing the planet's tool, suite, and approach having in the way they practice digitalization, um, the, the importance of that was really highlighted. So we took the step over this last year to establish a, a new foundation. So that's, it's called the Open Planets Foundation. And it's not-for-profit, independent, membership-supported organization. It's founded in the UK, although our fantastic executive director, Bram van der Werf, is in the Netherlands. And the foundation is starting with the, the results of the Planets Project. So it's going to maintain those, it's going to sustain the community, uh, the growing community of users and extend it beyond its current boundaries. It's going to help it spread quickly out of um, the confines of Europe. It's already uh, have members in North America and we expect to see that grow internationally over the coming couple of years. In addition to sustaining the community around the planet's tools and services, we're also expecting it to provide a kind of focal point for the digital preservation community that has been really very good at producing high quality, usable tools and services, but has been less good at helping them make that transition from being project results or pilots to become real production quality. And also, I think as a community, we struggled with finding ways to sustain that and sustain those efforts. And we haven't seen, I think, any big failures yet, but I think we have seen reluctance of organizations to invest in using tools because they don't have a clear future ahead of them. And I'm hoping very much that the Open Planets Foundation will be able to provide that kind of support, that sort of community focus and the kind of professionalism to help sustain products and services well beyond um, what was produced within the Planets Project. Of course, collaboration is extremely important in digital preservation. Absolutely. I think one of the things that's been clear to all of us, right, is A, we're not big enough to solve the problem ourselves, and B, um, the problem looks very similar if you're a national library in the United States or Canada or Austria or Denmark or the Netherlands or uh, the UK, um, there's a lot of similarity to the problems and uh, we can't risk going it alone and we can't risk uh, letting someone else solve the problem for us either. We have to be actively engaged in it. And that's one of the things that I think the Open Planets Foundation is going to help uh, ensure that we are able to do. 
I'll mention, I'll just mention another thing, which I don't think I've had the chance to tell you anything about. I think I can probably talk about it. I think this will probably be out at a date when it's comfortable. But we're also seeing a new round of funded projects coming out of the European Commission. There's some uh, great new ones being funded under the framework Program 7. I think both the British Library and the Open Planets Foundation will be involved in some of those new projects. And one that I'm particularly interested in, that unless a major stumble between now and the middle of September should be starting up later this year, a project's called SCAPE, and it's led by the Austrian Institute of Technology, and they were one of the strong technical partners in the Planets Project. It's focusing on uh, scalability, scalability, scalability. So it's taking the, the results of the Planets Project, and it's going to help push them to a totally new level of scaling, which is important as we see the size of our collections also go to unprecedented levels. And the software for the Planet Suite will be available on SourceForge, is that correct? That's correct, Mike. In fact, it's available from SourceForge now. The URL, I'm sure anyone can find it by searching for Planet Suite and SourceForge, but uh, one could find it on planets-suite.sourceforge.net. And that enables you to uh, download and install the uh, Planet Suite. In addition, people may or interested may want to go to the Open Planets Foundation website, which is at www.openplanetsfoundation.org. No spaces, no dashes, just run together. That's a new website. It brings together a lot of great information about the Planet Suite, about the approach. It brings together the training materials and the white papers, all of those products coming out of the Planets Project that are really um, ready for prime time and ready to be used actively by that growing community. What's the level of expertise required to work planets? Is it GUI-based or command-line-based or or both since it incorporates Um, tools? So it's all sort of web GUI-based. It can be run from the command line, but primarily it's web and GUI-based. You can do tool things like um, you can define a workflow in, in Plato and then press a button and it produces some horrendous, horrendously techie XML, which you never have to look at, which then gets loaded into the, the workflow execution engine and you, know, you can run it on your 100 terabytes of content relatively efficiently. But it's oriented towards what I call preservation professionals. So it's, you know, it's not your grandmother, it's you know, not your nine-year-old daughter, it's someone who's engaged in caring for digital content at um, an institution where they probably have a little bit of tech support, but it's meant to be easy to install, easy to fire up, and quite usable for people in that category. So it's, it's tools for professionals. So. Now, there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about, Adam, and that's the uh, time capsule. Can you talk about the planet's time capsule? Oh, yeah. So this was a really cool piece of work. So there were two things that were particularly interested in the time capsule, interesting about the time capsule. First of all, we've spent a lot of time uh, in the preservation community talking about representation information. So what's representation information? That's everything you need to know about digital content in order to make sense of it. But sometimes those discussions get extremely, let's say, abstract, uh, theoretical. The time capsule made it really real. And let me tell you what we did. So we took a a set of a half a dozen digital objects in very common formats, so 
audio, MP3, MOV movie formats, Microsoft Word, PDF, those absolutely everyday uh, typical digital objects. We put them on a whole range of media, CDs, floppy disks, Blu-ray, Base64 encoded, printed out on paper, for heaven's sakes, solid-state drives, hard disks, a whole range of digital uh, media. So the question we have is, how long does our digital media really last? At last, uh, the time capsule may help uh, put that to the test. So we, we took the digital objects on digital media, we put it together with all the information we thought you need to understand them, we put it in a metal box and we stuck it under a mountain in the Swiss Alps. And uh, the plan is to go back to that digital time capsule in 5, 10, 20 years and see what the state of the affairs are. Were we right about that representation information? Were there things in there that we didn't need? Did we need things that we forgot to include? How about that digital media? Do they still work? How about the content? Can we still make sense of it? Be a really, really interesting and exciting challenge. Did you but, say you included the hardware as well? We included the media. We did not include computer hardware like a, a laptop or something like that in there. We considered it at one point, but we ended up um, not locking up our old laptops in a box and putting it <laughs> on the mountain. So the time capsule is actually a, a quite an exciting affair. Our partner in, in the time capsule is an organization called the Swiss Fort Knox. So they're in the business of long-term data archiving and retention. Corporations and even governments will give them digital information. They'll archive it for potentially an indefinite amount of time. And those corporations, organizations will want to be able to make sense of it when they get it back. And they have a pretty good command of the digital media refresh problem. So they refresh the tapes and they validate them and all those sorts of good things, a standard, good standard of, of uh, excellent standard business practice. But they haven't really solved the digital preservation problem, the content preservation problem. And so they were actually extremely excited about the potential that planets brought to the table and were quite interested in having us do this time capsule activity with them. They operate as sort of a, an extremely, for me as an outsider, uh, entertainingly secure facility. So it's, you know, it's under the mountain, there are vault doors, there are all sorts of uh, physical and digital safeguards to keep the information extremely secure and extremely safe. But I like to say um, they're keeping the bit secure and safe, but without software tools, techniques, and approaches like we developed within the Planets Project, the content will not be meaningful in the future. Well, Adam, thank you very much again for talking with us today. Well, Mike, thank you. It's been uh, my pleasure. This has been a podcast from the Digital Preservation Program at the Library of Congress. For more information about digital preservation, please visit digitalpreservation.gov.